For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of work. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Happy Monday, everyone. Happy August. Happy whatever it is you're celebrating. Welcome to the latest edition of Richard Skipper Celebrates. I am so excited about tonight's show for a myriad of reasons. Uh, first of all, this week marks my 43rd year in New York. I came to New York 43 years ago on August 5th, 1979. And shortly after I moved to New York, I moved to uh, Brooklyn. And one night I was listening to WOR radio and Jim Lowe was on and they were having a contest. And the winner would win two tickets to a current Broadway show. So I was, he said, you have to listen to the whole show. So I listened to the show and at the very end of the evening, he wanted to know if anyone could name the first song that was played that night. It was Lullaby of Broadway by Tony Bennett. I called, I won, and I won two tickets to Oklahoma at the Palace Theater. And for the first time, I experienced Christine Andreas, and I <laughs> fell in love. And I've been in love ever since. I know her husband's in the room. So I'm saying this full disclosure. <laughs> Christine, I am so thrilled that you were here tonight. Uh, it's a great honor to sit down and to celebrate you on our show tonight. How are You're you, sweetheart? Well, you always you took me to a good memory right off the bat there. Uh, well, it, it was a it's a great memory for me. I mean, that first Broadway show you never forget, and we'll get to that in a few. I moments. was your prize, Richard. You, I you were my prize, <laughs> and you were my prize this evening. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to ask you, as I ask at the beginning of every show, who or what are you celebrating tonight? What am I celebrating tonight? Oh, my God. Such a large question. I think maybe staying vertical. <laughs> <laughs> we just moved and, uh, and have had a number of performances all the while. So and, and including just last night and, you know, not getting home till one o'clock in the morning and then doctor's appointment back in New York, just life, you know. So just being able to stay vertical with the velocity of my life is uh, kind of a nice thing to celebrate right now. Well, you, you know, that brings up every night I pick up a word and the word that I pick tonight and it's, a, it's appropriate uh, is balance. And yeah. I want to talk about, uh, I want to change this. Everyone, it's balance, not a balance. So make sure you don't put the A in there. We're I'm going to take that out in a moment. But I want to ask you, how are you able to balance a career, uh, a marriage, all that it takes uh, in this crazy, especially in this crazy world we're living in right now? You know, I just think that it's, it's, it's sort of designed to be challenging and you can take it to the level of crazy if you want to, but you know, you're here to cultivate your soul and you don't do it unless you're challenged. So at some point, I think I just accepted that that was the uh, flow of life to, mm -hmm. to be on a daily basis and sometimes minute to minute, you know, challenged and, and when you make that choice and you also make a choice to believe in something bigger than your ego and your own 
little consciousness and if you believe that something will put the thought in your head or the direction, go right, go left, stop, go, you know, if you believe in that. Um, and if you're basically a good human being, you know, and believe that life is good, all these are necessary things, right? If you believe all these pieces, then even if you don't know when you wake up what to do next, you trust you'll figure it out before the day is over, the important pieces. And it is, you know, the 12-step thing, though I've never done it myself personally, is probably the highest level of metaphysics out there because mm -hmm. it says so many beautiful things about challenge, you know, and being addicted, not just to a drug, but to a behavior and emotion, you know, and it's so hard not to get addicted to a good feeling or something that gets you through it all um, or a belief system that, you know, maybe will serve you for a little while. But the truth is, and I believe this, that life has no path. There is no path. You know, there's a path for you. There's a path for me. What works for you may not work for me. You know, so if you follow um, a doctrine, you could get caught in that. And, you know, so I wake up just thinking, okay, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> and I've gotten comfortable with not knowing. You know, I'm more comfortable with not knowing than ever, which is a good thing at my age than ever before. So, um, eventually it'll kick in because well, I believe I'm a good person and I believe my intentions are good. And, and if I'm wrong, something will surely surface to let me know. <laughs> well, that brings up a very interesting point. Davis Gaines, who I've had on the show, said mm -hmm. that being in this business is like being in the midst of a pinball machine. <laughs> you, you go into this business with a certain game plan of what yeah. you're going to play out. And then yeah. all of a sudden life experiences begin to happen. Yeah. And uh, it's the people, you know, it's the circumstances that come up or don't come up. Um, yeah. When you set out in this business and we'll go back in a few moments, but when you set out, did you have a, a particular game plan? Oh. Or <laughs> Get on the bus. <laughs> game plan. Get on the bus and just go. No, I didn't have a game plan at all, but I had the most, and I'm sure you've heard this from other people. I just had in my heart such a huge, strong impulse that this was the only thing to do, you know? And I, I mean, and I say this in a couple of my shows, I had, I'd never seen a Broadway show. I'd only listened to them. I was just out of high school, literally by a few weeks, maybe a week when I came to New York, finally. And I only lived 40 minutes away, but I'm from a big family. We never went into the city. I had nothing. I, I knew nothing. I had a couple tiny connections from my parish. But my heart was so lit up with the idea of, of going into New York and singing my heart out. You know, that's all I, that was all I had. And it was enough. Because God gifted me this, what was in here is a gift. I no, woke up there. Mm -hmm. You know, it was there. You know, I guess I programmed that through many lifetimes. Yeah, I just want to be pretty and I want to have a good voice. Thank you. And they <laughs> patented me and shoved me out into the world. Um, that's all I had. But I wasn't scared. I had How to Audition by Michael Shirtliff under one arm, the trade papers under my other arm. I literally really had just gotten out of high school. Dennis Decker, my high school leading man, came into New York with me. 
And as I was putting the dime into the phone, calling the African room, which had its in a showcase, I turned to say, Dennis, and he was gone. He literally was gone back to the bus, into the Port Authority to go home. So I went alone, you know, and got my first job. And, and it was all innocence. It was the power of innocence, you know. Is that innocence still there? You know, you asked me for a picture of me when I was little. So this is me and my right. innocence. I'm sorry, trying to find that. That's me and my innocence. And I think, yes, because God put into my life this little guy. This is when he was little. Oh, that's great. What a great picture. I love that picture. I know, Mac and the Mushroom. That's my son, Mac, who now looks like, you love I put all these pictures on my piano so I could show you, but this is what he looks like now. Wow. My handsome boy. Yes. He's 34, but my boy is special and he's on the autistic spectrum. And, and there's a piece of him that will always be innocent, that will always be four years old. And... And this mother thing is fierce. So whatever kind of an idiot I was, and I was kind of an idiot for a long time. I didn't mean to be. I just was pretty unconscious um, in a lot of ways. Well-intentioned, but unconscious. Um, having that energy in my life every day really helps me try to stay on course. Because I, I really love something so big. It's such a big love. And love is a compass. I want to go back to that five-year-old uh, self. Uh, I, I'm assuming you're five years old in that photograph. Sort of. uh, I don't know. I'm pretty little. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about this little girl, uh, where you were growing up? You mentioned earlier that it was the cast albums that you, uh, as it mm -hmm. is for most of us, uh, we have no idea of what that world is like out there. Sure. Uh, but there's... Just the results, the shows, right? But there's something... Every single person that I know in this business, where no matter where they came from, that pull was there and it pulled them right to New York and got them where they needed to be. And yeah. it did that for you as well. Um, so listening to those cast albums, not knowing what that was out there, um, how did you first break into performing? Was it in school plays? Was it in... Local theater? Mm -hmm. like, well, like a lot of young people and kids, you, you, where are you going to sing when you're little? You know, so you'll sing in church. You'll sing in, um, you know, local plays, community theater, parish plays or, or church plays or, you know, American Legion halls. You know, I remember singing for the Irish Fesh, you know. And then sometimes there's competitions. So I got into competitions um, locally, which I never won because it was always rigged. Mm -hmm. I would have to go into New York City for the finals and beat everybody else. That's just what happened. Um, you know, you, you gain your confidence. I mean, I remember saying, you know, when I first got my confidence on my way to grammar school, I would pass my Aunt Mary, who worked for Dr. McCarthy. And different patients would come to the office and Aunt Mary would say, and I love my Aunt Mary. My mom was one of 10 girls and Aunt Mary was one of four of those girls who never married. 
And she was kind of in love with Dr. McCarthy. It was a whole big thing. Anyway, I would visit Aunt Mary and she would say, oh, Nina, my nickname is Nina. Nina, the Wurzburgers are coming today to see Dr. McCarthy and they love your voice. Would you sing for the Wurzburgers? And I would sing for the Wurzburgers and they would give me a quarter, Richard, which in those days was a lot of money. So early on, I learned not only that, but I, I loved. And early on, I noticed that when I would sing for people, they would get so happy. They would just feel so good. They would get so joyful and happy. And I would go, this is a good thing. And you are creating this. So I, I, I love that. That was so easy for me to do. And the feeling also of singing was a, such a sensual, fabulous feeling. So all of you know this wonderful mix of goodness convinced me that I should do that. Do you have any recollections of that first time that that voice, that you were aware of that voice? Or have you heard stories from those around you who remember the first time that this voice was emerging from you? Well, I don't remember the first time. I remember my mom was a natural singer, and I've said this in many interviews, and so she, the music always filled the house, and her voice always filled the house. And it was a really pretty sort of alto sound and and mostly it was just the joy of making sound unselfconsciously, happily, you know, that was in the house. So I came out singing, I'm sure. Um, but I do remember when I was in grammar school, but I was a little older. Maybe I was in sixth, fifth, fifth, fifth grade or something. Sister Mary Joseph, the head of the music department, told my parents if they didn't send me to voice lessons, they would go to hell. Now she was kidding, but but they and my folks were noticing that the sound was special, and maybe should be cultivated. And there was no theater, any kind of, you know, sophisticated, you know, musical background in my family. Just you know, my mom could have been a big band singer, but in those days, you just got married, had kids, you know. Um, but they got that, and it was at some, you know, it wasn't easy for them to arrange for that. And, I, and when I went for lessons, I never understood what the hell they were talking about. But the accompanist, Bob Tartaglia, was amazing. And nobody had ever played underneath my voice. And when he played, another level kicked in, you know, because nobody had ever accompanied me before. And when you heard this underneath the sound, the music, and it wasn't just over a recording, he was playing according to the sound I was making from what the song was doing to me. And it was the most natural thing in the world, but it boosted the whole experience of making sound to this another level of joy. So I went, this is good. This is good, too. I want to do this. So it, everything was quite organic in my early Franklin Jella, he talks about that moment where you step for the first time from the darkness into the light mm -hmm. in front of an audience. Mm. Do you have recollections of what that experience was like for you that first time that you yeah. were in front of a bigger audience? I don't know if it's the first time. I just remember it being in the light never bothered me. On stage, off stage, it bothered me a lot. And a lot of people say that, you know, I was not comfortable in my skin mm -hmm. for a very long time. But on stage, when it got all dark with just me and the light and there would be the piano or the music underneath me, and I loved the song, which was the magic of it all. You know, because you have to love what you're expressing. Mm -hmm. It was like, I'm home. I want to do this. I, I, I was in love. It was love. You know, it's just love. You know, making that kind of sound in that situation. 
And I was comfortable being still with the music. I was comfortable just with the sound of my voice. You know, I mean, I needed a lot of maturing as an artist, but I think that instinct that this was all good and natural was very important. Well, a lot of people everywhere, uh, they enjoy singing. Some sing in churches and concert halls and uh, Masonic halls. Uh, but <laughs> very few, statistically, uh, actually pursue it. Yeah, what, was the, what was the turning point for you when you said, this is truly the path that I am meant to be on? There was no turning point. It was like a straight trajectory. You know, I just, I felt good about it. I felt the most myself doing it. Like I said, offstage, I was not comfortable in the world. I mean, a psychic told me, well, you're from another, you know, constellation. You're not really from the earth and you're a million years old. And I went, oh, that's interesting. But actually that made sense to me because that's how far away I felt from being in this world. You know, I, I just really felt like I don't even belong here. But, and that lasted for 35 years until my son was born. Wow. Um, and then I felt like, oh, okay, okay, this is okay. But prior to that, I, I was just kind of a unconscious soul, you know, just, just being, you know, just jumping around from thing to thing, you know, like an unmoored boat, kind of just going from thing to thing. And a lot of great stuff happened, but the impact of the good things that happened to me in my early career never really touched me deeply to give me the fullness, you know, other than being alone in the spotlight and making sound that, that I'm sort of contradicting myself saying this. So I'm thinking about it as I go, but um, being on stage was always magical. Everything else about it was confusing. <laughs> what can wow, I say? That's great. Everything else was confusing. <laughs> Well, how did Audition by Michael Shurtleff land in your lap? Hmm. I don't know. I guess I guess something just, you know, guided me to thinking, well, because I had no training, mm -hmm. I had no teachers. I had one vocal teacher who was fascinating. Her name was Betty Jane Watson. She'd been a lorry, she'd been she had this big cannon of a voice like Merman. So she, I think she was Merman's cover in Gypsy. And somebody I worked with in community theater, the director's wife said, you really should be taking, you should be studying with Betty Jane. And so her daughter and me would go to Betty Jane Watson's place in Piermont on the Hudson. Do you know that's where I live? <gasps> what a good idea. <laughs> You've got to so, come. That's where I live. So I believe there. I always wanted to live there. Yes. It's well. Oh. Oh, how fantastic. Do you have to boat into New York? You get in No, 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 no. Uh, I, I live a little bit more inland in Spark Hill, but I am. Oh, okay. I was raised in Suffern. Oh, okay. okay. For part of the, my lifetime. So that's why I was so close to the city. Could just get into the bus and go into New York. It's really like 40 minutes away, right? Um, but anyway, Betty Jane would, would meet you at the door with a beer <laughs> for herself and her way of teaching you was like, well, if she didn't like what you were doing, she would just go, no, no, no. And then she would do it. And this canon of a voice, you know, but her appetite for it, you know, is so, I even forget what the question was you asked me, but what was the question? No, I, I asked how Michael Turtle's audition landed oh, in your life. Well, maybe like with Betty Jane and 
you know, I mean, there was enough of an influence where maybe I just found this book, maybe at the library, I think, you know, and I went, maybe looked up how to audition because I was going into audition in New York City. So I had to learn how to do that, you know? Um, so that first day you came with your friend, you arrived here, right. you turn around and, he, and he's gone. He's gone. I see his back and he doesn't answer me. He just keeps going back to the bus. And you got did you got the show right away that you and I, I couldn't go back to the bus. I would have hated myself forever, and and I didn't want to go back to the bus. So I looked up the address and I figured out how to get there because you know it's a grid; it's not that hard. And I think and I went to the African room, and in front of all these cheetah skins, I sung "I Believe," and I got a job doing an original musical in North Carolina. Which was pretty bad. Monty on the rocks. I even remember. But it was breaking the ice. It was knowing that I could sing something I loved. And it's a pretty powerful song. It's maybe not exactly what you sing for an audition, but I think there's, you know, if you're if you're embodying the tune and I know hitting the notes well, these people were bowled over. And I was even chubby, really kind of chubby then. I think it was like 135 or 140 pounds, and it was only five three. They hired me anyway, and um, I got this gig in North Carolina. I'd already had my equity card because I did summer stock in high school. What was the show that you got your equity card with? I did Guys and Dolls and the Fantastics. I think it was the Fantastics first and then Guys and Dolls, the same place in Warwick, New York. Mm -hmm. I got my card. It was much easier in those days, you know. So I already had my card, you know, and I was ready for action, you know. So getting your card so early in your career, for some people, I mean, they've said that it becomes a blessing or a curse, depending on how you look at it, because you can audition for a lot of things. But things start to unfold for you. Well, see, uh, but back then, most things were equity that you wanted to do. Now it's different. There's a lot of really high-end productions, non-equity. But I don't think back in those days, there was, there was a lot to do. And prior to me, there was a lot more to do. You know, I mean, I mean, if I'd come into New York in the 40s or the 50s, it would have been really extraordinary. You know, I came in in 1969 and a lot of great shows. And then I went into all these revivals because there wasn't as much being written. Right. And as when when did you move to New York? Uh, And was that an easy transition for you? Or did you remain in Rockland County? Well, you know, no, I moved in almost right away. And I was in Queens with a couple of girls in a roach infested apartment, you know, and going back and taking a, a day job as a secretary where I, <laughs> that was quite a trip. I was a terrible secretary. Thank God it was a terrible secretary, a terrible waitress. All I could do was sing. <laughs> so, um, and then... It went on the road with a show, fell in love with a guy, got married way too young to the wrong guy. I uh, did the, the, Nash, the last leg of the bus and truck of the national tour of Fiddler. And all those girls would fall in love. You know, there was many couples came out of Fiddler because there were all these young couples in the show, right? So, of course, I married my pear chick and that was not a good story, but whatever. Uh, 10 years of not so much happiness. Um, Mm -hmm. But that's when a lot of the big stuff happened. You know, my fair lady in Oklahoma during that time. Well, do you, I mean, if if you don't mind my going here, Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, forgive me if I, you know, but if the unhappiness is there, you're seeking happiness. And you were finding the happiness in in your work. It shows, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And you don't realize that you're kind of unhappy when you're, I mean, I didn't, I just thought, Oh, I guess this is just me and it's a challenge. And if I just become, become, you know, better, this will all smooth out or whatever, but whatever. Jealousy is a hard thing to recognize. That's what was going on. It's hard to recognize. Wow. It is hard to see. And as your career is starting to form, uh, Mm -hmm. do you have an agent, a manager? Oh my God, right away. I mean, in those days, you know, they would have casting calls. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The agents would just put it in the paper, you know, come here. And so I got an agent right away. Um, Maybe not the best agent. But then after, right, right during Oklahoma, the most brilliant agent of my life came into my life. Bruce, um, oh my God, he just, and that thing just went out of my mind and he's so beautiful, APA. I'll think of it in a minute. Absolutely, he was a classical pianist. He was just stunning. I see his face before me and he loved me in the purest way because he, he loved my gift. Mm-hmm. But then the second husband was jealous of Bruce and just said, you know, it's him or me. And being an idiot, I chose the husband. And that was the face first major mistake. Well, not the first, but a major mistake. Because some people really want to build your gift, you know. And he really well, looking did. Looking at it now, was it a mistake or was it a life lesson? Well, I guess it's, you know, you choose to look at it as a life lesson. Because at the time, you make the choice based on who you are. So that's the only choice I could have made at the time. So it's a life lesson. But it was just sad that I didn't have enough self-respect, you know. And, of course, in the words of Piaf, je ne regrette rien, you know. I mean, you got to throw it all out. It's just who you were at the time. But it does sometimes make me sad because I just think, wow, if I just stayed, if, 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 you know. In retrospect, you just see where the love really was. But unless you're that loving of self, you don't recognize it. So you make another choice. And, and that's, the, that's exactly the formula for every choice that's been a major detour wow. in my life. Bruce Savan. Bruce Savan. He was beautiful. And he cried when I left. He cried. Well, I would cry too. Yeah. Well. He, he knew how to do it. He was such a class. He was beautiful. Yeah. You have been very, very fortunate to have the career of an actress and also the cabaret work that you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and you talked earlier about being in the, that spotlight and being in that light. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know uh, you do both brilliantly. Do you have a preference? Mm. No, not at all. It's interesting that, well, I mean, right now at the age that I am, there's not as much theater coming my way. Um, but it, prior to this, and I'm not blocking it out. That's cancel, cancel that thought. It could, you know. Um, usually you get in a gear where you feel like doing eight a week. It's arduous. But like, I would get this feeling like I could really enjoy the consistency of that, you know, and sharing a dressing room or having a dressing room and, you know, just all that goes, the paint, the whole, the lights, the whole thing. And when I would feel that way, often it would begin to happen. I'm a pretty good manifester, you know, but other times, you know, the reason I got into concert and cabaret was my son. I mean, eight shows a week, you do not see your kids. Mm. You don't put them to bed. You know, you don't sing them songs, you know, except, you know, later on there was this. When I was doing Pimper in L.A., 
I would, you know, well, I don't even think I had computer, but I had the phone and I had the speaker system and I would say, Hey Mac, they're doing into the fire. Can you hear it? Okay. There you go. Isn't this great? You know, and I had this connection with him over a phone, putting him to bed and he loved it. You know, Pimpernel is still one of his favorite shows, you know, with Doug Sills, who wouldn't find it a favorite show, but you know, uh, but I missed my children. And so, and prior to Pimpernel, I mean, when I met my husband, Marty Silvestri, um, I was single parenting and I, Mac was only three and a half and I didn't really know what I had on my plate. And I still really needed to sing, but I really needed to be a good mom and understand my son. And I just looked up to heaven and I said, what? What are you thinking? You know, why do you give me this and then this and then what am I supposed to do? And I waited for the answer and Marty came into my life and we started concertizing. And then I could more or less choose a schedule, you know, and cobble a life, you know, a new life, making music a different way. And our first gig was the White House. So it was pretty. That's a good way to start. You know, uh, it's a pretty scary way to start. Yeah, but If it's the right White House. <laughs> it was sort of in the middle. George yes. the first, you know. Yes. But you, you um, mentioned uh, the word manifesting. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about some of the roles that you've played. And with these, you embody these roles. Is there a particular role that really you felt took over completely? and that you completely lost yourself in that role? Yeah, but I think they all did. Because, you know, I I was very picky in the beginning. Like, you know, people offered me things, and I go, no, no, no. And they were talking Broadway, and I go, no, no, no. And, and I wasn't being egoic. I didn't think. It was just like it didn't sit. You know, I didn't, you know, I didn't digest it into my gut and have it feel good. Um Fair lady, of course, you know, where else can you go with that? Initially, it was incredibly self-conscious and difficult because I was such a young actor and I was an untrained, unskilled actor doing Shaw. I mean, that was hard. Mm -hmm. So that took quite a while for me to digest. And I went through a lot, which is a whole book, let alone a story for us tonight. Oklahoma, Lori was like a coat. I put her on. I got her. I got all the contrariness. I got all the reasons she was so contrary. I mean, she was afraid to surrender to love. You know, she was afraid. Um, I got it. So she was not hard for me, whereas she confounded a lot of actors. But for me, completely natural. Uh, on Your Toes was fluff. You know, it was just enjoying the rhythms and the music. And you had Mr. Abbott, who was a genius. I don't care if he gave me line readings. They were perfect. They were <laughs> wonderful. And they sounded different coming out of my mouth than his. And he loved me and I adored him. Um, and then after that, there was a big lull in theater. Um, and depending, you know, always on the book and the script and the keenness and trueness of the writing, it was natural. Pimpernel was difficult. It was not a completely fleshed out. It was a great idea, a great idea. You know, the original Zorro story, you know, it really was what it was, you know, but it's set in, you know, French Revolution. Mm -hmm. My role was not fleshed out and I didn't know how to quite get that to happen. And we didn't have a lot of time and it was really sad, you know, and, and musically, although there's many beautiful tunes, it was written for the indestructible voice of Linda Etter. And I don't have that voice. So it was challenging. Uh, what doesn't kill you makes you grow. So I learned a lot. 
and I loved my company. Um, Light in the Piazza, the national tour. This is really wild because many times in my life, my art and my life are imposed on each other in the most miraculous mm. way. So my son was 18 when that came about. And without actually saying, I want out of here, your schedule's too rough for me, he basically indicated he wanted his own life. And I think through his own wonderful psychic self, because it doesn't happen easily, we found a group home. You know, 15 minutes from where I was living, I was living in Croton on Hudson at the time. Mm -hmm. 15 minutes away, looked like a beautiful situation. And so when I signed my name on the dotted line to Piazza, which is a show about a mother letting go of a special kid, I was in fact a mother letting go of a special kid. And my son went into his group home and I went away for 55 weeks on the road with just enough vacation time to make sure he was doing okay, but to give him a separation enough so he had the dignity of feeling his new life. And that was truly a magical time. And doing that show on the road was astonishingly fabulous. I loved doing that. I always wished I would do it again. It never came together again, but... Adam's score and Craig's book and this, the people we carried with us in the pit who kept it, you know, the integrity of it musically, because it was very complicated. Mm-hmm. The places we played, the company, it was fabulous. My husband was with me on the road enough that it, you know, it just was so cohesive and it was wonderful. And then the other, only other thing I want to say is my husband, we met on a show he wrote called The Fields of Ambrosia which regionally we did in New Brunswick and it got the notices of, I mean, too good for Broadway. I mean, it was like the, the notices, your mother, you wish your mother, you know, your mother could only write. And we were so thrilled beyond belief. And then we all made steps, you know, we took paths that were not necessarily the correct course, but we went to London with it. And, you know, we, we wave an American flag. I mean, they don't, they're still pissed off about the tea that we spilled in the harbor. <laughs> I hate to tell you. And there was a whole political thing I could get into, but we went into a Nederlander theater run by a producer who had his own ideas of what he wanted in the theater. And basically everybody told us this could happen and it did happen and we were sabotaged. But had that show come to New York, life would have been incredibly different. And now it's being remounted get this everybody at the surf light theater in long beach island one of the original cast members wants to see it again but doing that show oh my god it is perhaps was perhaps my dream part even though it wasn't like i mean it's a guy show but my part was so fabulous a lady or a tiger it was so great so that role not i fell first in love with marty's music and then I fell very quickly soon after with him just because of the way he worked with the company and what he did. And the experience was air. It was magical here in the States. In London, it was air until we opened. <laughs> and the system just had its way with us, which was very cruel. But it's going to get mounted again. And who knows, maybe in our older age. Well, it, I hope so. I'm, you know, we deserves what happens out there. It would be um, great. 
I want to talk about the lulls in the business. Um, yeah. When they're long lulls, what gets you through? What's the fortitude that keeps you going? I mean, thank God you've got Marty. You've got this wonderful life outside the theater as well. Well, that's uh, important. That, that that's helps. It. That's it. Omar Sharif said you have to have something else you love because it's, I was even thinking about it today and I don't know why. How incredibly complicated and difficult if you choose a life in the arts and, you know, in the classical world, I think it's even harder. Classical pianist or a violinist or, you know, a guitarist or a ballet dancer. I think it's much harder because where are you going to do that at the top of your game on a cruise ship? Maybe, but not a ballet dance. You know, I mean, where are you going to do it? I, you have to have something else you love because it is love that supports you in everything. So you have to have something else that just keeps you buoyant, a relationship, a craft, um, reading even, you know, something. For, for, for Omar Sharif, it was poker, I think. Or, and he had a column. I mean, really scary. <laughs> I don't want to have that as my go-to place, you know, to keep me buoyant because that's really crazy. Because, you know, the arts are a gamble enough, but um, I guess that's what it is, you know? I mean, it's love. I want to I talk about two women in your life, uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, and they have both been compared to each other, but I want to know what you've learned about yourself from uh, singing their music, and that's Judy Garland and Edith Piaf. Mm. Thank you. That's, that's good. Um, well, I did a show called Heartbreaker, on John Meyer, who's been on the show. Yeah. And uh, John, you know, he wrote this incredible book, which really moved me about living with Garland, you know, towards the end of her life, right at the very end of her life, really, mm -hmm. right? And he held her in his arms and he loved her and he revitalized her career in the most miraculous ways, in ways he never thought he could, because she inspired him as broken as she was. And she was broken mm -hmm. when he met her with five cents in her pocket and hadn't bathed in a week and all this stuff. I mean, when you read it, it's like, oh my God, this is Judy Garland. How does his soul deteriorate like that? But she was a complete addict. You know, thank, you know, she can thank her mother for that. Cause you know, Dexedrin, mm -hmm. when she was a young kid was in urns in the studios and they just piled it into the bodies of these little girls. So they could finish a dance routine, you know, on schedule. I mean, Garland didn't have a chance not to be an addict, you know, and it's heartbreaking and it is heartbreaker. And so she broke hearts because, you know, John was in her life as long as he could supply her with what she needed. And the minute he couldn't, she dropped him. And subsequently, very soon after, was dead, you know. So Garland was a complete victim. Um and it's tragic because she was such an icon and, and so stunning. And you wonder what that karma is. Like, what kind of karma does a soul have that they come in like that and have all that happen with a mother and leave like that? You just, it boggles my mind. And maybe that's a show someday I'll write, you know, myself. I did heartbreak. I want to ask you, what did you find within yourself? I mean, you're playing her 
at the very end of her life. Yeah. Uh, and we all have, of course, her body of worth, as I like to refer to it. Yeah. Her yeah. film canon, her concerts. Yeah, uh, what was beautiful, her, right? What was stunning. Was all beautiful. But you're right. I mean, John, when I had him on the show, said that he has been accused of being an enabler. And he says, and I will admit that I was, because he How knew- How could you not have been? It was Garland. Garland. And he, was, and he knew that if he wasn't doing it, she would have gone to someone else. And I guess he was also trying to put her back together. You know, on the other end of that, he was also trying to show, but look at your beauty. Look at what you put in the world. Look what you still can do. Come on, honey, let's get better. He was also doing that. So God bless him. You know, he was trying to do that. But at some point, I mean, I just went through this with a friend. Literally, I just have gone through this. Literally, just two weeks ago, I said, she doesn't see your beauty. She doesn't get it. I can't. And I, I had that conversation with a friend this morning. Yeah. And I mean, I, and she was going to go to the next step and get psychologically better and she wouldn't do it. And I said, sweetheart, if you can't do this, a relationship has changed. I just, you know, and we have to take a break. And I'm still like trying to find my balance with it. You know, what do you do? Because you see a beautiful soul and you want to help them. But if they don't want help, at some point you realize you can't do anything except take a break. Because you're just enabling them to stay in a gear where they're unhealthy. You know? So anyway, it, it's painful. It's very painful. And my dad was an alcoholic and died of it. So mine too. So it's it's and he was such a beautiful soul, my daddy. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is the difficulty of life. But you know, life isn't all it's cracked up to be, Richard. It's great. But there's so many other levels of healing that have nothing to do with this little experience we're having this time around. This is my belief. Because if there is something big and divine, there's so much to learn as a soul. You got you need you need a lot of a lot of incarnations to get it straight. The soul needs a lot, not just a single lifetime to get it straight. I believe and, that. I mean, it has to be. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. All the death, all the detritus, all the mess. I mean, we are really unconscious. I mean, we're just pretty unconscious on this level because this is a beautiful planet and there is so much beauty and look at what you're looking at. And I don't just mean the news because that's all slanted too. But just wake up and look around at people being half alive. You know, a lot of people are just half alive. And you go, man, that's so sad. It's so beautiful. I mean, I see beauty in everything. I see beauty in mud. Mm. I see it everywhere. Well, that's I where do. the lotus blossom comes from. Yeah. I mean, I see it. That really is true. I say love sustains us, but sense of beauty, if you're an artist... You see it everywhere, you know? I mean, I really see it in places that are so crazy. And it, it, it lights me up. It just lights me up for the next moment or the next thing or gets me through the pain of my friend, you know? And about, to finish your question about Piaf, as nutty as her life was, she was never a victim. I don't think she was ever a victim. Now, I have to do, you know, her history... She really colored her story. Like if she liked something written in the paper, that became her story. 
not necessarily true, but she just liked it. I was born on the steps of, you know, Paris. No, she wasn't born on the steps. She was born in a hospital. But she liked the way that sounded, so that became her story. But it's kind of cool, you know, that she just liked keeping it buoyant and in the air. And considering what she came from and who she became. See, Garland, when I did that show, I would be depleted by the end of the night. When I do Pia, I'm just uplifted at the end of the night. So it's something about the spirit of those artists that is, that doesn't die. It's in the ether. It's in the Milky Way of consciousness. You know, when I do PF, she's right, like I say, she's right there, making sure I'm doing a good job. Because if I'm doing a good job, I said, she's, I said, I say, welcome to the night. Edith and I are thrilled to be here. And I said, oh, trust me, she's here, making That's sure wonderful. I'm doing job because if i do a good job you're going to feel her too and i believe before we do run out of time tonight and i told you this hour was going to go by fast i did uh, yes uh but i want to ask i i want to tell everyone that on sunday you are going to be performing in uh queens in long island uh Mm -hmm. in a celebration of rogers and hart with bruce Bider and south shore theatricals that's Mm -hmm. how this interview came about tonight so if you want to tell us a little bit about the show and uh, uh, this is your first time working with Bruce Bider. Yes, it is. Yes. Uh, I did this a few years ago with Marilyn May and Leroy Reams and uh, yeah. Anita Gillette. So it's a lot of fun. Well, I'm thinking it's going to be, you know, we met only once and had a little rehearsal and went through my tunes and um, it's Cole Porter. So that's always good. I mean, sorry. Rogers and Hart. Rogers and Hart, yes. I just did Cole Porter. Sorry, I can't keep all my gigs straight. Rogers and Hart. You know, Lady is a Tramp could be Cole Porter, couldn't it? I I went, oh my God, it's Rogers and Hart, Lady is a Tramp. But anyway, um, so I'm doing like four numbers. And, you know, he has a lot of people from community who will be involved, which is a lovely thing, right? Everybody, I mean, you asked me my start, you know, when everybody gets their shot, if if you love music, you know, that's cool. You know, so I'll be the headliner, you know, doing what I do. And then I'll watch what everybody else does. And I won't know till the day what that is, you know. Um, it's like so a I'm, it's like a train pulling out of a, a station. You just you get there. <laughs> you just you jump go, on. You just jump on and do it. Give so, you take it and go, baby. <laughs> as I mentioned, I'm going to be giving away a, a couple of your CDs tonight. Uh, oh. And I've been listening to them all day. I, I uploaded everything onto my device today. I won't mention the name because it'll go off right now. Uh, but uh, <laughs> glorious. Uh, here's to the ladies. I love, I just, I couldn't get enough of it. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I hope you do a part two and I hope you do here's to the men because I oh, think that would be yeah, sure. a, a great idea. But I want to talk about, uh, I've got some questions just for the fun of it as our wind down questions. Uh, today is National Girlfriend's Day. <laughs> and when it's a, it's National Girlfriend's Day, not girlfriends in the sense of a sexual relationship or that friends that, who are girls, uh, friends who are girls. And I want to ask about the girlfriends in your life and career that have helped you along the way or who have been there uh, as a major part of your circle. I suppose the first really I, I wasn't great at girlfriends, you know, I, I and not not as a youngster because I had so many kids in the family. I was second oldest. 
I took care of my brothers. I didn't have time. Uh, although I had a couple that I liked. Um, and then coming into New York that I got, I got so involved with, you know, right away with a guy that I, you know, didn't have time for girlfriends. But in the course of my career, Dean and Merrill was one of my best girlfriends. Oops. No, that's here. I, I've got that so that people know. Oh, I see. In the hashtag hat balance. Okay, sorry. Dean and Merrill. Dean and Merrill just taught me. And I, what, what does a girlfriend do? They give you support. They, they, they appreciate what you're putting in the world. They, they give you positive critique when you're off course. You know, Dina was brilliant that way. And I, I loved her deeply and she sought my friendship, even though she was much older, it didn't matter, you know? So I called her my fairy stage mother. And, and then also I made girlfriends out of, and, and Kitty Carlisle too, same thing, you know, with all of her elegance and wit and, awareness of things. Uh, she became a girlfriend. Um, a couple of fans became girlfriends. My friend Jill Leitner and Karen Mulvey. These two girls that started off just loving what I do. And then they just came into my life in the most interesting way. And in their appreciation of what I do, and then in my calming them down that I'm just a human being and they didn't have to be so self-conscious, they could just be who they were. You know, I, I think I helped them too. And they've moved my life forward and put a lot of beauty in my life and a lot of support. Karen produced, um, was one of the producers on Pia, because she could. My friend Laura Sestito had three special boys. And when I left New York, I moved to Hastings-on-Hudson. And for the first time, I was in a neighborhood, and my son could run out the door and run to Laura's house and say, hi, Laura. And it was like, oh, my God, he'd only been mine for 24-7, and now he could run out the door and be safe and see Laura and her sons. And, you know, and my, my friend Liz uh, Fernandez, same thing right there, you know. So it's just they had breath and space and beauty. So all these girlfriends of mine, my friend Liz Law, who's a ch children's book editor and, you know, a crazy world traveler person and brilliant and sees all the shows. And I go, Liz, what should I see when I go to London? And she tells me and I don't know, I could go on and on. My cousin Nancy, you know, who's a fellow Libran and Nancy Brucker. Uh, I just I could go uh, on and on. Libran balance, Libra. So I'm a quintuple Libra. I have five planets in Libra when I'm born. I am so nutty about balance that I'm unbalanced. So all these people help me stay balanced. Because it matters so much, I get crazy. Is this what I should do? I don't know. Should I do that? I don't know. Is this what I... <laughs> and then my friend, Bob Schindel, is one of the best girlfriends I know. <laughs> Good. Good for you, Bob. Now, I always pull a random question. This is a question that I don't even look at until I ask it. And the question is, uh, interesting question, would you rather have a cook or a maid? Oh, cook. Cook. Absolutely. And that's my husband, Marty. Sylvester. Oh, he's the cooking. And in fact, he's making lobster tail as I am talking to you. Don't oh, you wish you were in my house? <laughs> yeah, sounds great. Well, uh, unfortunately, I'm allergic, but my husband would love it. So that's oh, great. Yeah. So uh, then the next uh, random uh, statement is commit to solving a problem that's been bugging you for a while and give yourself a timeline. So I'm going to ask you, is there a particular problem in your life that's been bugging you lately? <laughs> lately or all my life? <laughs> I thought about it. I thought you were just going to ask me something. I'm not going to know how to answer. 
you know, being continually conscious is, is, and that's forever, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, you get so strong about, I, I feel about this this way. And then, you know, and you get hardened in that idea. And then you realize being hardened in that idea is not serving you or the moment or your life or anybody else. And so you just keep praying that stuff will bump into your brain. And hopefully the more hardened you are, the harder it bumps. So you're praying you're not too hardened in anything so that you're malleable and able to uh, adjust so that you're not adding to the violence and to the mess because it's pretty messy out there. It sure is. And you know what? But I don't choose to focus on that. I try not to focus on that because then I just keep creating it. I try to focus on the kindness I find that I'm saying, you know, we just moved and people walk by with their dogs and kids run by on their scooters going vroom, vroom, vroom. And I think, oh, this is so beautiful. So I try to focus on the harmony, you know, on the, on, on the beauty that other people outside of my consciousness find. And I just try to focus on that to soften my own imbalance or my own unconsciousness so that on a daily basis, I'm just a little more aware and I don't add to the mess because the mess is man-made. You know, we make the mess. The world is perfect. Existence really is perfect. perfect. So don't focus on that, but on a daily basis, pray for the balance. And maybe our friends who aren't listening to us who are in their addiction will believe they're worth it if they would do that. I hope so. Thank you for saying that. Um, and this is an interesting question. Have you ever been ambitious to the point of ruthlessness? Oh, I think so. Yeah, but not on stage. I'm pretty generous. But I don't know. I, I was, <laughs> this maybe doesn't quite it, but apparently during Pimpernel, I was gifted with um, massages during intermission, uh, during a matinees. And so this person would come because one of these billionaires invested in the show and he liked me. He said, so I'll send my guy to work on you. And, and he would do moxie on me. And apparently the moxie, it smells like pot and it would drift into the boys dressing room. And I think they hated me. I mean, I didn't know that it drifted into their dressing room. And, and I also insisted on having a big dressing room, which was maybe a little greedy, but I had big gowns and I wanted them near me. I don't know. Yeah. You're not. And I also remember when I covered in rags, Teresa Stratus, I want, I worked really hard on that piece and I wanted a big bow and I'm trying to remember the choreographer, Ron Field, I think was the choreographer. And mm-hmm. I insisted on this big bow and I wanted this big walk down center stage to take my bow. And he was, he really liked me, but he was kind of so bludgeoned in so many ways in that production. And he just said, Christine, if you want that bow, that's fine. I just want you to know that a two-ton curtain is going to fall on your head before you make it down. <laughs> so I don't know how, I didn't, you never intend to be ruthless. I mean, some people do. They think they, can, they that unless you're nothing, they can't be something. That's not me. But sometimes just the weight of the situation makes you unconscious and you're not kind. So I would apologize to Ron and everybody else for the weight of the situation, <laughs> bludgeoning my brain and making me unconscious. But, you know, I believe that the, anything you do is only as good as everybody in it. 
and you're as strong as the weakest link. And, 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 you know, that's kind of how it should be. Right. And that's the way it should be. And, mm -hmm. uh, and thank you for that. I'm going to uh, give away uh, a couple of Christine CDs. Christine, thank you for doing this. Oh, thank you. This was lovely. And you're right. You're super. And Mark, I talked to Mark Nadler today and he said, oh, you're going to have such a good time. Oh, I love Frank just won. Frank, you won. And, uh, and I love Frank. And I have to tell you, Frank, his daughter, uh, uh -huh. Ava, who is just moved to New York, if she hasn't uh -huh. already, uh, is going to knock New York off its keyboard. <gasps> she really? is just a phenomenal talent. Frank, uh, Ava is, uh, he should be so proud. And well, tell Frank that if Ava needs a little, you know, encouragement, you can give her my email and I'll. Well, that's very kind of you. Help her out with what yes. I know, she, which may not apply at all to her, but you never know. I will, I, and I will send you a couple of clips of her because she is okay, just cool. absolutely amazing. And last night, uh, we had Charlotte Crosley on the show and we were talking about the business and everything. I'm going to say a few closing remarks. And then, Christina, I'm going to give you the final word for tonight. Uh -oh. uh, yes. So uh, hang tight for just a moment. I want to thank everybody who showed up tonight. Uh, as I've said before, uh, I don't take it lightly when you show up. So thank you for being here tonight. Uh, and as we go into this next month, I cannot believe uh, that <laughs> we're only 100 days away from the midterms. Uh, and <laughs> so many things that are going on right now it's going to be september and pumpkin spice and all of those things before you blink but yesterday i went to see suede a phenomenal talent and she was talking about these positions that we are on in life where we're either going once we get that job once we get that show once we get that uh job once we get this our lives are going to be so much better. Or we're thinking, once we get over what we've just come through, once we get through COVID, once we get past whatever we're going through, when we get the next administration, whatever, life is going to be better. Everyone, this is it. This is all we have. Mm -hmm. And we all have to hold on to this moment and we have to create balance in our lives each and every day. So when you get up in the morning, uh, I get up in the morning enthusiastic about what that day holds for me. And if we all take that as our mantra, as we go through each day, don't think about the bigger picture, but think about what you can do in the next 24 hours. When you see a post on social media that's going to lift somebody up, share it, comment on it, uh, share it with your friends. If it's something that's going to tear someone down or this negative, delete it hide it, get rid of it, and stop it in its tracks. I, as you all know, I end every show by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. After tonight's show, what I want you all to do is go to your Facebook friends list or whatever platform you're on and reach out to the sixth person that pops up and yeah. reach out with a phone call. Not an email message, not a text message, not a private inbox message, but a phone call. And let that person know what they mean to you. Because as my dear friend, John Moniker always says, we're all in this together, but we're not in the same boat. And you never know what someone else is going through right now. But I always say, as you all know, uh, if you're going to go out in a boat, make sure 
you bring a skipper along. <laughs> Christina, I'm going to leave the screen and I'm going to give you the final word. Anything that you want to build upon that we talked about tonight, anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had, or just any final message that you want to leave everyone with tonight, don't worry about how to end the show. As soon as you say goodbye, uh, the credits will roll. And thank you. Thank you for the gifts that you've given to the world and that you will continue to give. I'm a fan for now and forevermore. Thank you. Oh, Richard, that is so lovely. Well, I like what you were saying about how we wake up in the morning because how we begin our day is our future, right? So I believe you wake up in the morning and usually I feel the light first. And even if it's not a particularly light day, I do try to appreciate the room and and I think of elements in my life that I appreciate because sometimes it's not a day at a time. Sometimes the weight of things is so confounding and difficult. You can barely get through a minute at a time. But if you are able to just appreciate something tiny in your life, anything, then maybe that will help you get through the next minute and the next minute and the next minute. And before you know it, you're a little bit lifted. Uh, and I actually read that if you can't do that, then go back to sleep until you can. <laughs> and uh, eventually you'll wake up and try again. And all those minutes will add up to a life that begins to feel lighter. Because we do deserve that, completely deserve that. It's your birthright to have a good life, a life that expresses who you truly are, your, your unique self. We are all unique beings. And uh, it was easy for me because it was in my throat. It's not as easy for some people to understand how they are uniquely gifted and contributing to the world. But it makes such a difference when you can figure that out. And if you can't, you pray on it and eventually you do figure it out. Or you draw people into your life that help you figure it out. And you move forward a minute, a day, a week at a time. I wish that for all of you. And thanks, Richard. This was fun. Bye. Round two, name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.